Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Impossible Podcast. If you guys didn't notice, we have a new day. Uh, we're re- releasing these on Tuesday here going forward, and uh, it was going out on Thursday. We're now on to Tuesday, and the goal is to get this in your ears early in the week so you have more time throughout the week to remind yourself to keep pushing your limits and do something impossible. So, new day, same show. Let me know what you think. And yeah, so today's guest is Dr. Sean Baker. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He's a former rugby player. He holds multiple world records, and he's also a huge proponent of the carnivore diet. That's all meat all the time. He talks about the benefits that you have from a performance standpoint and from a health standpoint. It's really interesting. As you guys know, I have a background with paleo and keto, and it was really interesting to see someone take that evolution to the next step and just go all meat all the time. So we talk about a whole bunch of things uh, related to that, and Sean is sort of kind of on the forefront of this all meat all the time diet. So it's interesting. We cover some of the criticisms of the diet and uh, some of the ways that you can get it implemented. So this show is going to be really awesome, but before we get into that, If you guys want to support the show, you can go ahead on over to movewellapp.com. Whether you're an athlete that's trying to recover from your last workout or you're sitting down all day and you just need to stretch because you're getting all these aches and pains throughout your body, check out movewellapp.com. It's the easiest way to do 10 minutes of mobility a day. We designed the app to let you pick a goal and then do the movements that you need to do in order to achieve that goal. So whether that's improving performance or just feeling better, having less aches and pains, it's all right there. It's your 10 minutes of mobility a day. It's a free app. So go check it out at movewellapp.com. Also, if you guys need a reminder to keep pushing your limits and do something impossible, check out impossiblegear.com. It's the most comfortable gear to wear when you're about to do something uncomfortable. So check it out. You can get 10% off with promo code podcast. We've got t-shirts, we've got sweatshirts, we've got all the gear that you need to have to go push your limits and do something impossible. We had a couple people that said, hey, Joel, your shirts are cool, your sweatshirts are cool, but I want to take it the next step. And Josh from Indiana actually sent in a photo of the first impossible tattoo in the wild. He was sitting around, he was saying, hey, I wanted to do more things with my life. I need a reminder every single day. And he actually sent in a photo of him with the first impossible tattoo. You can actually check that out on the blog at uh, impossiblehq.com slash blog. And you can read Josh's story. It's actually pretty awesome. I've joked in the past about people getting an impossible tattoo and he took me up on it. So nicely done, Josh. Shout out for that. And since I posted that, I actually had a bunch more people ask me if they can get an impossible tattoo too. And the answer is yes, but email me because I can help you get graphics and uh, we can sort out everything else, but also mostly because I want to know about it. So if you're interested in doing that, you're a little crazy, but that's why you're here. So that's awesome. Check out Josh's story on the blog. But if you're not quite ready to get a tattoo yet, that's okay. You can head over to impossiblegear.com and get a shirt. Still a good reminder, just a little less permanent. All right. (laughs) All right, guys. So that's what I've got for announcements. Uh, Let's get into my interview with Dr. Sean Baker. All right, and we're live today, guys. I have Sean Baker. He is a fifty-year-old uh, athlete, uh, has world records in rowing and I want to say deadlift, and he can dunk. And he does this all on an all-meat carnivore diet. Uh, Sean, thanks for coming hey, on the it's show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I threw out something on Twitter, just saying, "Hey, who who would you guys like to see on the show?" And I had a bunch of people. Uh, bring your name up. And then I kind of dived into your background and your story and uh, uh, got really interested. I was like, all right, we have to do this. We have to make this happen. So uh, I'm familiar with uh, the paleo background. I've got a paleo background. I've got a bunch of paleo businesses. Um, I think a lot of my readers and listeners are familiar with the paleo and keto basics. Um, but if you want to get into your background of you know how you kind of stumbled into 
the world of the carnivore, and then uh, we'll just get into uh, a bunch of things from there. Yeah, well, I mean, interestingly, I, I was a, a paleo guy for quite a while myself, you know, as I kind of got into my mid-40s and noticed my health wasn't doing what it was supposed to be doing, despite, you know, just training really hard. I was really training hard, and I always thought that, uh, you know, as long as I trained hard, I could eat whatever I wanted, and then I realized that wasn't that was no longer the case after about 40 some years. It worked until it stopped working. And then uh, I, I went through a whole bunch, bunch of different diet iterations, you know, including a paleo diet for a couple of years. And uh, I just, you know, continued to read and get interested in wanting to ch- test things and try things. And uh, uh, eventually ended up where I'm at now, which is, you know, basically a, a, an all meat carnivorous diet, which, in, you know, having tried all these other things, this is what has worked the best for me as far as uh, health-wise and as far as uh, athletic performance. And so it's been a really interesting journey. Um, you know, I've, I've, for whatever reason, have influenced a lot of people to try it, and they're also noticing very similar results with regards to improvements in health and, and athletic performance. So I think it is uh, uh, just a, uh, a very interesting sort of personal and sort of group experiment that's going on right now. So what was the... What what that journey? What that transformation from paleo to keto to uh, carnivory? Is, is it, I think that's the right term. <laughs> carnivory. Um, what 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 did that transformation look like? And as you kind of took each step, what what did you see or notice that changed that kind of made you keep experimenting with? Yeah, all this? I think some of it. You know, like I said, when I first started, you know, I I did it in an effort to just get leaner because I was a. Uh, you know, I was a big strength athlete, you know, I was about 285 pounds, you know, and I was a world, you know, I was a world champion level Highland Games athlete, which is a big thrower. And you you really need to be big for those sports. But, you know, as I got later, and I just didn't want to be that heavy, I said, well, I've got to lose the weight and improve my health. And uh, I went on a low calorie, you know, high fiber, low fat diet. I did lose weight, I got leaner. Uh, but it wasn't sustainable. I was always hungry. It was not something that I I, I just felt I could do long term, uh, despite the fact that I have quite a bit of discipline. As an athlete, you kind of learn to have, uh, you know, really good discipline. You have to, to succeed. And uh, I found that I needed something more sustainable. So that's when I started, you know, just trying these other diets. So paleo came up and I, you know, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the different recipes you had and, explain, you know, trying to, try, try to make foods that you like out of things with different ingredients. And, you know, just, you know, the, 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 it was kind of fun doing that, but, you know, I, I just continued to read more. And, and, and as I got into, you know, what, why the physiology is working, it, it brought me more to, uh, from a, really from a disease management standpoint, you know, because as a physician, you're, you're, you're also concerned about as an athlete, I'm concerned about, you know, performance, body composition. As a, as a physician, you, you, you tend to be concerned about overall health. And so as I started to, to understand things like inflammation, hyper, hyperinsulinemia, and some of those other things that are driving, what I think are driving disease, I kind of tailored my diet more to support that or what I thought would support that. And I noticed improvements in some subtle things, uh, you know, um, blood pressure was normalizing, uh, Pain was getting better in joints. You know, after after you know forty years of beating yourself up playing sports, you have some aches and pains. And so I just continued to, to notice improvements in health. And I and when I applied it to patients, I saw that as well. You know, but then as, as because I'm very competitive, and I was always looking for how do I get to be better as an athlete. It just made sense to me that animal protein was something that was helpful. I read about some of the older ways to do this. You know, I've never. I've always been sort of opposed to drug usage. I've never participated in that stuff. And so I was always trying to do what I could do to, to, to be as competitive as possible without, you know, kind of cheating. And so it, it kind of just sort of made me try a carnivore diet. And uh, when I did that, you know, sort of surprisingly, it was very, first of all, it was, it was very fun to do. It was very nutritious. I felt really good and I didn't get bored on it, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I, I lost all the cravings I had for the other things that you think you might miss. And after I did it for 30 days, I said, well, it was a fun experiment. I'm going to go back to what I normally would eat, which was at that time a more ketogenic diet. And I just didn't feel as good. And, you know, I had some uh, kind of minor health things that still had been bothering me that that kind of came back right away. And so when I went back to full-time carnivory, you know, things that had bothered me, particularly joint pain. And those are the things that, that really got my attention as an orthopedic surgeon uh, joint pain and tendon pain. It's it kind of just been there in the background. You know, you kind of, you kind of 
sort of expect that as you're an aging athlete, that you're going to have to deal with that stuff. And that stuff just completely went away, which was just kind of mind blowing to me because I, I, that's not the natural history of what you see with joint pain. Most people, they have it and it just slowly gets worse over time. It doesn't usually go away. You know, it usually ends up with some sort of intervention, drugs, injection, surgery, you know, after a period of time. But for mine, it just completely disappeared, which to me was literally kind of mind blowing. And, and then as that happened, my athletic performance got better because I could train harder and my recovery got better. And, you know, I just, you know, I just felt like I had better nutrition. And then some of the things associated with hyperinsulinemia, you know, regarding the skin, you know, cause you can look at your skin and see, and I thought all these positive skin changes were happening. And, uh, you know, I was getting leaner and stronger and faster and my recovery was better. And my sleep was better. And my mood was better. And so to me, it was just, a. You know, it was it was literally like aging backwards, you know, at least regaining your metabolic health, which I think is uh, pretty, uh, uh, pretty powerful medicine, if, if, if you want to use that term. Yeah. So one of the things I, I tend to tell people, especially with, you know, with paleo, paleo is really good from a framework of just getting most people out of just eating crap. You know, like vegan diets are even good for that. Just getting people to stop eating uh, processed food and craps. But once you kind of get to this point where you've removed a lot of the crap, there's a section where it comes to just optimization. And the interesting, uh, you mentioned it a couple times here, but if you can go into your background, uh, your medical background a little bit, because um, I think it's, you know, an interesting piece about your story is you share a lot of things that you're kind of experimenting with yourself, but you also have that medical background and uh, it kind of grew out of you treating your clients and your uh, patients in a different way than just fixing everything with surgery or fixing everything with pills, uh, which is seems to be the way that a lot of people want to fix things these days. Yeah, I mean, that is something, you know, as a, as a physician, you know, trained in Western medicine, particularly as a surgeon, you know, I was given a set of, I was given a set of tools to fix problems. Uh, and that's what I knew. And that's what I did. And, and, you know, I was happy and I was making people better. At least, at least I was making their symptoms better, you know, and I think that's the, the, the point, the bottom line with Western medicine. We do great things. I mean, there's great things that doctors do. Doctors are well-meaning, hardworking caring people, but the system is set up to deal with the complications and the chronic symptoms of underlying, you know, disease problems. And, you know, we have lots of technology, we have lots of tools to put on what I call high price band-aids on problems. And so for, for example, and I just talked about this on the mind pump Pat podcast the other day, I would go in there and, you know, someone would come to me with a, with an arthritic knee and I would fix their knee. I'd give them a new knee replacement and their knee would feel better you know, much better than it did before. Maybe they would still have this underlying inflammation. It was still kind of bothering from time to time. As we know, a lot of people that have knee replacement, they still have some pain, but, but generally they're much better. They're very thankful. They're happy. They write you letters. They give you cards. They bring in food. They want to thank you. They want to introduce you to their kids and they're very happy. And then a year later, they come back and their other knee is hurting. And they're and, and because they trust you, they want you to replace your other knee. And as a physician, it's very rewarding. You say, okay, great. You know, they, I did a good job on their one knee. They like me. They trust me. They want me to do the other knee. Good job, Dr. Baker. You're a good guy. But what I've come to understand and appreciate is I should be doing more and I should have been doing everything I can to prevent that person's knee from progressing to arthritis. And I think it is in many cases, not always, but in many cases, if we were to try and we were really to put the effort in and really focus on fixing diets, fixing lifestyles, you know, fixing training, fixing recovery, fixing stress. So many people could avoid, you know, not knee replacement, but all kinds of diseases. And, I, and, and we do not put any money or effort. There's no incentive for physicians to do this. Um, you know, healthcare is a big business. Healthcare is one of the biggest businesses in the country. Healthcare is unsustainable without sick people. You need sick people to have a healthcare industry. And the, the, the sort of the efforts towards prevention are pathetic. I mean, they are just lip service at best. I mean, they're, they're basically some screening tests. That's our, that's our idea of prevention. We have an army of prevention specialists that are working with these people closely, personally, day in and day out, fixing their diets, fixing their health, telling them how to eat, telling them how to do all these things. But instead, we put all of our money and we train all these people to be radiology technicians 
and lab assistants and lab technicians and surgical assistants and, you know, machine assistants and dialysis techs. You've got all this energy and effort on the wrong end of, of healthcare. And it's, you know, it's going to be unsustainable. We're not going to be able to keep with up, keep up with it. It's going to cripple our country. It already is crippling our country. We should be in America. You know, we are the wealthiest nation on earth. We have the most resource on earth and we're doing an abysmal job of taking care of our population. We should be the strongest, robust, athletic people on the planet. And we're not. And it's a shame. And I think I think it, I think it's fixable. The the interesting piece about that to me is we we kind of have a baseline expectation for how uh, we should be acting. And then we have all these fixes that we we're we're taking in assumptions that we're not even cognizant of. And then we have all these fixes that we're trying to put on uh, on top of that. So we assume that after a certain uh, amount of time, you're just supposed to hurt or things are going to hurt or, you know, okay, my knee went out last year and now my other knee is wearing out. But maybe there's a, a structural thing that you should be doing instead. We did a um, I, I hurt my ankle a couple of years back when I was running an ultra marathon. And uh, I thought it was just like, oh, it was just a, it was an ankle thing. My ankle's weak. And then I started looking at the biomechanics of my running and I realized, you know, the ankle's where the problem kind of showed itself, but it was really an issue with my hips. And if my hips would have been, um, you know, wouldn't have been so tight, then uh, my legs would have been the same length. My strides would have been the same distance. Um, I would have had the issues I had when I ran into, you know, when I when I ended up messing up my ankle pretty badly. And one of the things that, you know, I think that happens, you know, with biomechanics and movement a lot. But, you know, with diet, people always assume that, okay, well, uh, you know, this is something I've heard you talk about before. You know, okay, my cholesterol is getting high and I assume that my cholesterol is getting high. So I need to start taking the statins or um, I need to do all these other things. When uh, if we pulled back kind of, you know, we, we have almost an overabundance of knowledge. And if we just kind of pulled back and said, okay, well, how do you feel? Or, you know, maybe what if you stopped eating all the crap that you were eating and took out all the things that are causing inflammation in your body? How would you feel then? And how would that, you know, would that change anything in your diet, in, you know, in your overall performance? And uh, I'm amazed that, and I, I don't know if it's a, you know, you, you've talked a lot about the, financial incentives that, you know, medicine has. Um, but also I think part of it's the human thing where it's a lot easier to be like, oh, my foot's messed up. I need to go get my foot fixed rather than thinking about the preventative side of, hey, how do I make sure <laughs> I I stay healthy and I stay ahead of these things before they come? And I just don't think people have that correlation anymore that like, oh, well, the reason I'm feeling sick and tired all the time is because I'm eating sugar and I'm having these crazy ups and downs and crashes all over the place. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, your, to your initial point, you know, obviously I'm well acquainted with biomechanics as an orthopedic surgeon. That's what we train in extensively, understand that, that mechanical, you know, one joint affects the other joint. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I will say that even saying that, I think diet is a more powerful uh, predictor and, and has a larger effect in many cases, in most cases, on joint pain joint disease, progression of joint pain. You know, if we look, and again, if we look at our frame of reference for how people age, how they act, you know, what happens to them, what kind of illnesses befall them as they age through the years, all of our knowledge, all of our frame of reference is based upon a population that eats a bunch of grains. Uh, you know, we have a 70, 60% carbohydrate eating population. Uh, and that's been going on for 10,000 years. I mean, that's all of our frame of reference, every bit of modern medicine is based upon that. If we look back a little farther, if we expand our evolutionary lens back another 10, 20,000 years and look at the diet back then, it was largely an animal-based diet, you know, for most cases in many parts of the world. And we know unequivocally that those people had better bones. They had less de degenerative change. They were bigger. They were taller by six inches. Their brains were larger. They were, they were more muscular. And I think diet played a big, important role in that. And so I think what, because what I'm seeing unequivocally every day is people that, that switch over to a carnivorous-based diet say almost without exception that my joints feel tremendously better, which is to me mm -hmm. shocking. 
I mean, it's it, it's and it's it's so simple. But to think about the fact that you know, just humans are eating the wrong diet in general, and that's why a lot of the things we see that we consider normal aging, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. That's basically because our framework is this largely grain-based diet. I mean, if you look at Western diet for sure, I mean, it is corn, soy, wheat, and sugar. I mean, that is what we eat, you know, and, and vegetable oil. That is the majority of our diet. When it used to be 20,000 years ago, it was some sort of big ruminant animal and maybe a few plants you could scrounge up, you know, if you had to. And so I think we're aging uh, probably unnaturally for our species, at least for the last, you know, 10, 10 millennia. Uh, and, and we're, we're, you know, we see, and we see it as we change it out even further, you know, as we're getting more and more processed and more and more, you know, basically fake, I don't call it food. I call it feed. You know, it's like human <laughs> purina human chow. I mean, that's totally getting yeah. forced to eat. And we're just seeing the, the progression of disease, uh, you know, just rapidly, uh, you know, go out of control and, and we can keep people alive. We have the technology to keep these people alive, but we're stringing people out living in horrible, horrible health. I mean, it doesn't matter if you live to 85 or 90 or even a hundred, if you spend the last 30 years miserable and you can't do anything. And, you know, like I said, I'm in my fifties and right. I can still dunk basketball and run sprints and jump and, and, and throw and lift heavy stuff. And, you know, not just play with my kids, but, but, beat my kids in every sport possible. And, and, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a competitive guy. And you gotta be nice to your kids, but at the same time, I want to be able to beat my kids. But, you know, our perception of aging is based on, you know, what we know and what we know is only based on this population that eats what I think is a wrong diet in general. What I like about the approach that you're doing is, uh, you, you talk a lot about, um, when people come back, they'll say, you know, okay, well, people who eat meat have a higher risk of cancer and you're not going to get all the vitamins and, uh, you know, all these different things. And one of the things that is interesting about, you know, kind of looking at this kind of from uh, uh, P- Peter Thiel calls this first principle thinking. And if, you know, we're, we're looking at everything from a Western diet perspective. And if we have this baseline of a Western diet, then we need to add in these different medicines or we need these different vitamins uh, in order to kind of compensate for, you know, maybe the, the different amounts of grains or inflammatory foods that we're eating. But, you know, when you kind of strip that all down and you look at a carnivory diet, one of the things I've heard you talk about in the past is, um, you know, everybody's like, okay, well, you need vitamin C. And then you talked a little bit about how uh, vitamin C and glucose uh, are correlated. And and some of the things that, you know, some of our conceptions about nutrition are actually, uh, they're necessary because of the type of uh, diet that most people are eating these days. If you want to uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things, if you look at a, a sort of a pure meat or a carnivorous diet on paper and you match it up to with what we would consider the RDA recommendations, it'll fall flat. It'll miss out on that, on several key nutrients. One of the most sort of obvious one of those is being vitamin C. And so the question is, why are all these people that are doing this, myself included, for many months, even years, and even decades, they're clearly doing this, not getting things like scurvy, right? You know, because the obvious, because what we know about scurvy is it generally starts to take place within about one to four months is when it shows up. And scurvy is an awful, awful disease. People die from it. Their teeth fall out, their gums bleed, their joints bleed, they open up into sores, they can't heal, their neuro- neurological system falls apart. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. None of us are getting that. And so the question becomes, why are you not getting it? Well, the answer, there's a number of things that go into that with physiology. One is, like you you alluded to, vitamin C and glucose compete with each other for a transporter. And so when your glucose is higher, your vitamin C requirements and your vitamin C capacity for us to, 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 to sort of absorb vitamin C goes down significantly. So if you're eating a high glucose diet, carbohydrate diet, you know, basically, you have a harder time absorbing and, and processing vitamin C. Additionally, vitamin C is an antioxidant. Uh, we have a number of our own other endogenous antioxidants like carnosine, glutathione, superoxide, dismutase, um, uh, uric acid. Those things are all upregulated in a lot of cases on low carbohydrate diets. So our need for vitamin C goes down significantly. 
Additionally, we've known, again, we've known for 100, you know, 150 years, meat, fresh meat, you know, will prevent scurvy and in, in, in many cases cure scurvy. The polar expedition guys figure this stuff out. The reason that the sailors, the so-called limeys, got scurvy was because they weren't eating fresh meat. They were given dried salted meat for their long sea voyages, and they coupled that with a high-carbohydrate diet, which was what they called hardtack, which was a bunch of dried bread and biscuits. So they lived on dried bread, most of their diet, high carb, and then they had dried meat. So that's why those guys got scurvy. The reason I'm not getting scurvy is because fresh meat has some in it, has enough in it. Uh, the USDA never bothered to test it. They, they put assumption zero when, when actually, in fact, there is some, some independent labs that can confirm that. So I'm getting enough vitamin C. I don't need as much vitamin C. And that goes the same thing for many of these other um, minerals that we see, like magnesium. There's such a huge, you know, now we know that a lot of people are magnesium deficient. One of the other things we know about magnesium and glucose, when glucose goes up, magnesium goes down. We also know that magnesium is intimately required in the metabolism of carbohydrates. So if you're metabolizing carbohydrates, you need more magnesium. So one of the reasons people are magnesium deficient, at least one of the possible reasons is they're eating a high carbohydrate diet. The other thing we know about a lot of plant food is that it binds up, particularly the fiber and the phytates. They bind up magnesium and make it harder for us to absorb magnesium. So not only is the, the requirement for magnesium go up on a plant-based diet or a carb-heavy diet, but the bioavailability of that magnesium is decreased. And so you've got this double, double whammy. Same things we're seeing with vitamin D, the same sort of situation. So over and over again, you can point to all these nutrients and see where eating a meat-based diet makes it both more bioavailable and sometimes the need goes down. So, so one of the things that kind of makes this complicated is, is it's hard to um, it's hard to remove all the different variables to test all these different things out in different ways. You know, you'll see a lot of, I think this is one thing that I've come back to a lot is every, anytime you talk about paleo, you talk about cavemen, blah, 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 blah. Uh, people get into the fact they're like, okay, well, they'll trot out the cancer studies on people who eat, you know, red meat. Then they'll trot out these things about, uh, you know, obesity along with people who, you know, eat red meat and they're not taking into account the quality of the meat, uh, anything they're eating additionally with that, uh, the amount of carbohydrates that, they're taking in at a time and it seems like i don't know it's it's it seems like there's been a slight trend against meat recently i don't know if it's like the vegan lobby or whatever coming in um or if it's just people like or if it's just honestly people who went vegetarian and cut out a bunch of crap actually do feel better and then they feel like they need to vilify meat but it just seems like it's a it's a complicated thing that makes it difficult and then when you have these stories coming out of people cutting out all these things, but meat, it makes like, you can't argue with that, that experience. Like if that happened, uh, you know, one of the things that kind of blew me away about paleo and keto was people. And it, and you know, if you, if you run this by doctors or kind of give you a side eye sometimes, but a lot of times people will reverse. We've had a, several people reverse type two diabetes just by uh, going paleo or keto and, uh, all of a sudden normalizing their glucose levels and their insulin levels. And uh, uh, it's amazing what just changing a few inputs and outputs can do. And it it seems like doing that um, on large segments of populations is, is pretty difficult. So um, how have you been kind of working with, um, you know, you, you're, you, you've been experimenting with yourself, but um, you, You've also been kind of building up this community of people and getting other stories of other people that have, have been trying this out on their own as well. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, let's go back to the sort of the vilification of meat. You know, meat has been vilified for, for, for you know, centuries, basically. And some of it has some religious underpinnings, you know, uh, you know, some of the sort of uh, uh, Victorian uh, Protestant uh uh, you know, religious folks really felt that meat causes people to be lusty and they really didn't want people to eat it. So they started this sort of campaign against meat and it's sort of sort of been percolating in the background. You know, the Seventh-day Adventists, that's their whole that's what their religion was founded on. Uh, they've got a lot of influence. They've influenced a lot of, uh, you know, actually research and, and companies. That, that was the Kellogg's guy, right? Well, yeah, the, the, the Kellogg's brother. Yeah, they were basically into circumcising women, you know, and, and uh, 
uh, mutilating women and making them eat cereal and not feeding them meat. It's all, it's all this kind of crazy stuff that they did. But, you know, we've got some really horribly badly done epidemiology that is so confounded. You know, a meat eater is not somebody who eats meat. A meat eater is someone who goes to McDonald's and orders a shake and a fries and a Coca-Cola. And, and that's how we, we conflate that to, to being a meat eater. A person who only eats meat doesn't do those things. You know, there, and, and most, again, most people that, that go to McDonald's and eat junk food and, and happen to eat that hamburger. Also, they, they smoke, they drink, they don't exercise, they don't go to the doctor, they don't wear the seatbelts, they don't care. And so that is where the epidemiology comes from. So, And if you compare that to somebody that's a vegetarian that cares about their health, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't, you know, you know exercise, goes to the doctor, you know, wears their seatbelt, those people, of course, are going to have a better outcome. And so we've got this really, really poorly badly confounded epidemiology. Now they try to accommodate some of those factors, but they never can take it out all the way. So we, 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 we see that uh, this epidemiology is driving this whole thing against meat. And then the science beyond that is really, really weak. It's, it's just not very good at all. Uh, we've got a big industry that, that, that is based on cholesterol saying that cholesterol is bad for us. You know, cholesterol is needed. Our body makes it, our body needs it. It utilizes it. It's made out of cholesterol Cholesterol in isolation as a health marker is, a, is an abysmally poor health marker in the absence of things like chronic inflammation and hyperinsulinemia. And so if you, you know, it doesn't matter what your cholesterol is, it's going to be whatever it, it's going to be, whatever it needs to be. You know, our cholesterol is there for a reason. If it's, if it's in association with chronic inflammation, hyperinsulinemia, then potentially there might be some problem with that. But, but for the most part, focusing on cholesterol is the wrong thing. You know, it's not, it's not the bad guy. It's kind of like the, the really, uh, really bad, uh, you know, minion. You know, it's not, the, it's not the main guy. So we've got a whole huge business. It's a billion-dollar, you know, multi-billion-dollar industry where we, we've got this whole thing where we're going to focus on cholesterol. And here's, here's a point, you know, to, to, to kind of support your point. Many people go on low-carb paleo, let's say ketogenic or, or even carnivorous diet, and they will report that their health has been the best it's ever been in their life. They will get leaner. They'll lose body fat. They will lose signs of inflammation. Their skin will get better. Their joints will feel better. Their digestion gets better. Their mental health improves. Their libido improves. Every single aspect of what we would consider normal human health is better, and they'll get one lab value that says their cholesterol is high. And to me, that just means that that cholesterol lab value is irrelevant. It doesn't mean that you know everything else you're doing is wrong. It just doesn't make sense from a straight up common sense uh, approach. And I think we have to put some common sense back in the way we, we treat health and what we what our perception of health is. It's not a lab value. It's what you are, how you are, how you feel, how you perform, how you look. All those things are more important than what your stupid LDL number is because that, quite honestly, can be anything. There are people that have shown that your LDL can change 100 points in, in a week. You can change your LDL 100 points in a week, which means checking it on Tuesday might, may, be, may mean it may be 100 points different next Thursday. So, I mean, to, to base all these healthcare decisions on, on, a, on a highly variable, highly context-dependent lab value, to me, is just bad medicine. It's ridiculous, and it's actually harming people. Well, I've seen that too, where people will lose 10, 15 pounds in a very short amount of time. And then they go into their doctor and either their doctor is, you know, pretty skeptical or, you know, uh, worst case malicious, but, you know, like they're, they're skeptical and then they'll do a lab and they'll get one value back. And they say, you know, I feel better than I've ever felt in a, in a very long time. And, but you know, I got this value back and, and now I have to go back to my normal way of eating and they go back to feeling slow and lethargic and uh, listless. And um, it's just amazing to me how, you know, I can understand the the human side of people coming into the doctor and saying, okay, I, I didn't think about prevention. I, I just want to, you know, fix this problem. But the, the thing that's blown my mind is having people that have, you know, kind of got on the other side of that and said, okay, I'm going to be proactive. 
I'm going to fix my diet. And then they'll go in and their doctor will kind of either start planting doubt in their mind or, you know, they, they see something that's obviously working for them and they say, no, 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 you got to cut it out, you know, add in, you know, your eight servings of grains a day and, 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 you know, get back on the standard American diet. Um, and that, that's the thing that I don't really have a good, you know, explanation or a reason for. And it's, it's blown my mind because we've had a lot of people that have seen results, they go into their doctor and then they're kind of torn. And, uh, it's, it's kind of bizarre. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, you know, and I'm, you know, you know, I, I trained as a physician. I've spent, you know, decades doing this stuff. Physicians don't know much about diet and exercise. I mean, they're not a good source for, for that information. And so they don't really understand this stuff. I mean, it's not that they're not smart, intelligent people that know about their specialty, but they do not understand how diet and nutrition and exercise impacts people's health very good. It's not a good place to get your information from, unfortunately. Uh, it, it puts people in a hard situation because it's hard to say where to get that information from. Uh, but, you know, you know, you, a lot of the physicians, I mean, they learn, you know, after medical school, they get most of their learning from drug reps. I mean, drug reps come in and educate. They put on they put on seminars. Physicians come in. They're paid by drug reps to go on and give give little, you know, continuing med- medical education sessions. And physicians are very much influenced by the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, there's no doubt about it, you know, whether it's direct payments buying meals for you, buying lunch for you, putting on free education, sending you, sending you to places to get education that's sponsored by these drug companies. I mean, that happened to me all the time. I mean, I was aware of it, you know, but that's where the education is coming from. Sometimes it's very subtle and sometimes it's very well put together. But the bottom line is industry supports medicine and medicine supports industry. And sometimes the patients are not necessarily, the best interest of the patients is not always um, result from that. Gotcha. So what is, what is your actual, so, you know, we kind of talked about this in the abstract and the, the science aspect of it, but what is, you know, when it comes down to, you know, your daily routine, do you have like a daily, uh, eating schedule? Like what's your, what's your typical, uh, day look like as far as what you're going to be eating in a 24 hour period? Yeah. I mean, 90, I'd say 98% of the days I eat two meals a day and it's usually, uh, you know, two pounds of steak in the morning and two pounds of steak in the evening. I mean, that's, that's my daily routine, you know, for most of the time, you know, rarely I'll deviate from that depending on where I'm at, if I'm traveling or something like that, you know, occasionally I'll have something a little different, but, uh, that's it for me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like my dogs. I mean, my dogs get fed me twice a day and they're happy as can be to get it. And I'm the same way. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny because most people think, gosh, that's boring, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I really miss the variety, but what happens after you do this for several months, you know, and when I initially started, I, I, I craved a lot more variety. Uh, I made my, I, I had a lot more variety with this. You know, I tried all these different things, different spices and different types of meat and eggs and bacon and cheese and dairy and all this stuff. As you get farther and farther into this, what you end up doing is you start to crave, literally you just start to crave red meat, uh, particularly red meat. And so, that for me is what I look for every single day. You know, when I'm cooking up my steak, I'm like my dogs. I'm drooling because I'm like, I'm really looking forward to this food. And I don't really have those cravings for those other things. That's that's something that hard, people have a hard time understanding because we've been sort of socially conditioned to always have this carbohydrate or this quick processed food or having snacks every two hours around us. Food is such an in, important, integral part of our lives that once you dissociate that from your you know, dissociate yourself from that. It just seems so, you know, so alien to people. And, but, but again, time and time again, if you listen to the people that do this for any length of time, they'll all come to the same conclusion. It's like, I'm not ruled by food anymore. I'm not a slave to food anymore. I truly enjoy what I eat and I feel incredibly satisfied and satiated. And it makes me feel good from a health standpoint, both physically and mentally. And I think that is something that is very powerful and, you know, maybe it takes a certain age, you know, after you get to a certain age, when you start to really appreciate your health and your mental well-being, uh, and you've had all those experiences in life already. I've eaten every single flavor of ice cream I ever cared to eat, to eat of a flavor of potato chips that's existed. You know, they're making new ones all the time, but I've eaten all that stuff. I've tried all that stuff. I tasted all that stuff. It's not going to, my life is not going to be any more more richly rewarded by trying some new flavor of potato chip, right? It's not going to happen. What is going to make me feel better is maximizing my health, my, uh, you know, you know, my physical health, my mental health, 
my relationships, my uh, just, you know, just my, my reason to be alive. You know, I just feel kind of, kind of empowered by this. And, and I know it's, I know it seems kind of, you know, kind of woo type stuff, but it, but it, there's some truth to that. And I think we have a lot of, you know, just kind of going off topic a little bit. We have a tremendous amount of mental health problems that, that are growing continuously. We see more and more people struggling with depression, anxiety, all kinds of mental health issues. And I think a lot of that is based on uh, what I call a concept of nutritional security. A lot of people are eating food that doesn't nourish them. And that I think is stressful, you know, physically stressful, but I think it's also mentally stressful. And I think it's subtle and I think it's in the background, but I think it's leading to mental health problems. And when you get nutritional security, getting everything you need from this, you know, essentially what you need, basically what, you know, what you're designed for, in my view, your health gets better in every aspect, including your mental health. That's something that uh, you you said it sounds a little wooer out there, but I I'm I'm all on board with that. I think uh, you know some of the big issues that we have, and I'm not going to get into you know the deep issues of depression and all this other stuff. But um, you know when people are taking in food that is kind of continuing their existence, but it's not necessarily helping them perform at their highest level or giving them the nutrients they need. And then they're going to a job that doesn't necessarily physically challenge them and they're not moving throughout the day. I think, you know, just, just the idea of doing something physically every single day that like wears you out and like, you know, puts you through the ringer. I think there's something about that, that like you finish and you're done and, and, you know, there's a there's a endorphin release. There's a chemical release that just makes you feel good and like you accomplish something. And then when you eat good food, instead of just being like, "Oh, I'm doing this because it tastes good," or you know, "I'm I'm alive and I'm having you know the right um, macronutrient breakdown to you know make sure that I can continue living without any diseases," when you have real food that you've made and is amazing, uh, there's something there's something about that, that it's not just fueling your body better, but, uh, you get something out of that. And, um, we've kind of stripped both of those things where you said, you know, like we have <laughs> people are eating feed, you know, it's like processed, it's, it's, it's food like substances these days. And, uh, and they're not moving, they're not experiencing things and they're not pushing themselves. And I, I think that's one of those things that, you know, once you get people to kind of realize that kick back in and, and and be in their body a little bit more. Uh, it, it it's sort of a mindset shift. Um, one of the things you you said you have two things at stake in the morning and two at night. Do you have anything with that? Like, do you have uh, like, I mean, are you like eggs, steak and eggs, butter and eggs? Are you you know throwing in fish, chicken, anything else, or is it just steak all the time? And have you seen other people that do you know the carnivory diet? Uh, you know, in a similar fashion or does most people just stick to stick to steak? Um, most people that do it long-term tend to tend to become very monotonous. You know, they find what they like and they like getting the, the sort of the same nutrition over and over again. There are a number of people that will, you know, include some other things, steak and eggs, you know, seafood, you know, put a little butter with that. And I, and I certainly did that again when I, when I started out doing that, I'll occasionally have those things, but not very frequently. Um, there are, uh, Again, most of the long-term people that do this, they, you know, because the diet is got so little, so many, vari- so little variable variability in it, they really figure out, they really become in tune with their body and what works best for them. And for me, for instance, if I eat too many eggs, it'll cause me gastrointestinal issues. If I eat too much dairy, it will cause me issues with sleep and congestion. And so I know for me, the thing that's going to work best for me and make me feel the best overall is just going to be straight up red meat. And uh, typically water. And I know it seems like it's a crazy, um, you know, crazy way to be. But what works is what works. It is what it is. And, you know, like I said, my goal is not entertaining my palate all the time. My goal is just and it's the other thing. I really enjoy, the, you know, particularly as you do this long term, you get really good at cooking steaks. You can make a pretty damn tasty steak. And so I really every single meal I have. I mean, I look forward to it. In fact, you know, I had a two pound ribeye for breakfast about three hours ago, and I'm already looking forward to my next one in about four or five hours. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to get your head or wrap your head around not having, you know, 55 different things to eat. But 
it's it's just the way it is, and it's just what what works pretty well for people. You know, if you think about it, let's let's go back, let's wind the clock back twenty five thousand years, and then you know write down a menu. You know, what's on the menu? You know, particularly in the Ice Age, particularly in Ice Age Europe, you know, where it's grasslands and there's a big, bunch of big roaming animals that you can kill pretty easily. You know, the menu is not going to be very long. You know, you're not going to have you know the, the appetizer and the dessert menu and the uh, you know, the, the, the 15 course tasting menu. I mean, you're going to get probably a big hunk of meat. You're going to eat to your full, you know, if there's something, some little berry, you might, might be seasonal that you might get a few of those, but that's about it. And that's probably the human diet for much of our evolution. And now we have just, you know, unlimited choices. You go to the grocery store and there's 20,000 items you can choose from. That is completely an unnatural way to live. And, and all that variety, you know, my dogs don't get a menu. My dogs don't get a calculator. They don't need an app to figure out how to eat. Um, you know, it's like what you know. What is the what is the diet of a lion? What is the diet of an elephant? It's very basic. There's very little variety. They know what they eat and they thrive on that. And you know, the question becomes, what is the diet of a human? And you know, my perspective is humans are. We were the the number one apex predators on the planet. We have killed successfully killed and eaten every other animal on the planet because we evolved that way. We have so many tools in our anatomy and our physiology that led us to be the best hunters on the planet because food is such a powerfully driving evolutionary force. And when your nutrition is animal food, you know, your, your evolution adapts to, to that. And, and like I said, certainly we are omnivores. Certainly we have the capacity to eat an omnivorous diet. Is that ideal? Do we thrive on that? I think I'm finding that more people are thriving on, on, you know, just meat than anything else. You know, if you look at a cat, you know, modern house cat, cats are carnivores. We all know that no one will, no one will deny that a cat's a carnivore. And yet we feed our cats a diet that's 30% grain. You know, we look at the cat food and the cats are still alive and they're still eating and, and most of them are staying alive. It's not that they're not still carnivores. It's, you know, they're giving, they're, they're eating an omnivorous diet because they can handle that. Cats have pancreatic amylase. You know, why do cats have pancreatic amylase? Probably because they incidentally had a few carbs. Same reason humans have some of these things because we incidentally were able to eat these things. And it's probably a leftover evolutionary uh, 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 feature from back when we were earlier primates, when we were eating fruits and vegetables in the trees. But once we adapted to that stuff, it became a minimal part of our diet. What uh? Do you have any like go-to stories of people of these different communities that you've kind of cultivated on your own? I know you've you start you said you're kind of you know searching. You know when you first got into this a little bit ago, you're kind of searching through these other groups online that were doing it. Do you have any other go-to stories besides your own of, of people who've done this and and seen significant change? Yeah. So I mean, I, in fact, I've created a website called MeatHeels.com, and I refer your listeners to take a look at that. Uh, MeatHeels.com has all kinds of stories of people that have just literally dramatically uh, changed their life. But one in particular, our first story was a guy named Charlene Anderson, who has uh, uh, been doing a, a basically a meat only diet for now almost 20 years. And she uh, started out very sick. You know, she was 50 pounds overweight. She had really bad Lyme disease, a whole bunch of other health issues, uh, mental health issues. And, you know, to look at her today in her mid forties, I mean, she literally looks like she's in her mid twenties, Perfect skin, beautiful woman, uh, just tremendous, you know, physical condition. She doesn't even exercise. She said all she does is, you know, she 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 makes clothes for a living and you know take takes care of her kids, but she she does no exercise. She, you know, if anybody looked at her, they would think she was twenty years younger than she is. Uh, that's one of the, and her husband's the same way. Her husband's about sixty, and uh, he looks like he's about thirty five. And the same sort of issue. He's been eating a fully carnivorous diet for now twenty years. I mean, we know there are compounds in meat. Uh, carnison in particular, which has been shown, at least in animal studies, to significantly reduce the impact of aging and possibly reverse some of the signs of aging is mediated by things like advanced glycation end products and uh, reactive oxygen, oxygen species. And so, you know, I just see, you know, lots and lots of these people. There are literally now thousands of these stories out there. I'm collecting as many as I possibly can and putting them up every day. I put up a new story. Uh, of somebody that's you know dramatically altered their life, and so just go to meatheels.com and you can find those stories. I'll put that in the the show notes for people who want to check that out. Um, are there any good criticisms? Is there a best criticism of the diet that you've seen that you're like, okay, there's a point here, and you know 
anything that you've done to mitigate that or are you uh is there is there anything out there that you know someone's come up with and been like oh that's a good point well i mean the biggest criticism you know and again a lot of the criticism came from people that were particularly informed about the diet you know they assumed you get vitamin deficiencies you know they assumed all these health issues are going to occur and, and that's not occurring in quite fact in quite contrast the exact opposite occurring people are getting extremely healthy with this the biggest complaint now is, you know, it's not sustainable for the planet, you know, the, the, the typical uh, environmental stuff. And so, um, again, what I would encourage people to do is because we have all this rhetoric, all this sort of propaganda that says that all these animals that we eat are living in horrible, you know, horrible conditions. I'm particularly talking about cattle. And I, and I, I would I would concede that some of the, some of the agriculture, particularly with like chickens and, and and possibly pigs is probably a lot worse than it needs to be and should be. Cattle production, in contrast, you know, despite the vegan propaganda, cattle generally, whether they're raised on pasture uh, or whether they are finished on grain or grass, they are pastured 80% of their life regardless. They spend most of their time in the fields roaming. Uh, the ones that go to feedlots, the feedlots are not places where they're crammed in there in most cases. In very minimal percentage of cases, that, that's the case. Most of them have plenty of room to walk around. They can walk outside. They, they, they you know, they, they have freedom to, to, to move back and forth. The, the, the people that operate those things tremendously care about their animals. If you t- actually talk to those people and not just listen to these vegan propaganda people where everybody seems to get their information, you will see that that is not, you know, it's not the nightmare horror show that everybody thinks it is. Can they do better? Can we do better as, as, a, as a population? Yes, of course we can. You know, the problem is, do people even want to try to do better or they just want to get rid of it, you know, get rid of the whole thing? And I don't think that's the right answer. I think by doing that, you're going to end up making people sick. You're going to turn, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be people getting feed. It's going to be, you know, Purina human chow. We're going to end up like these people from the Wally cartoon, you know, you know, helpless people floating around in our little hover chairs, you know, and that's not what I want to that's not what I want for my children. I want them to be robust, strong people. Um, you know, we have to improve the pastoring process. I mean, I think we need to look at the work of Alan Savory and Joel Salatin and those guys and look at regenerative agriculture. And, and regardless if it's grass finished, it doesn't matter. They still have to be pastured correctly. And if the will is there, you know, if the will is there, we can make it happen. It's just a matter of, you know, dispelling some of the propaganda and, uh, you know, really accepting the fact that, Meat is a vital part of the human diet. It's in, in fact, it's probably the main part of the human diet, and it needs to be. I've always been a little bit. Uh, it, it it always amazes me when people talk about you know like these farmers don't care about the animals. My uncle has a farm, and he's got you know some grass fed cows, and he has like names for each one. Like he knows each one, and then you know when they go to butcher the cow, it's like a it's kind of, it's a personal thing. Like it's not just you know this mill and. Um, I've always kind of, the, the argument, you know, I've, I've always, you know, when I talk to vegans, I typically say, you know, I'm not for, you know, these big, you know, slaughterhouse mills or whatever either. I, I, I don't think the answer to uh, bad conditions for animals is don't eat them at all. I think it's create, create better uh, options, create better quality uh, meat, create better grass-fed options um, and more humane conditions for the animals. But uh, it seems kind of insane to me to sacrifice your own personal health because uh, you don't think animals should die at all. When if you look at, you know, reality for most animals, like end of life situations are not really great for them. Like (laughs) getting eaten, you know, going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting butchered and getting killed and then butchered is a, a better option. As bad as that sounds, it's a better option than getting torn apart by a pack of wolves. And um, I, it, it seems like a lot of people either are ignorant of that or just kind of deny that that would, you know, be the alternate existence if if it wasn't for, um, you know, humans. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we look at, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, we are the we. I mean, we have to kill these animals to eat them. There's no doubt. There's no getting around that. I mean, that's just that's just what we have to do as humans to 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 eat. I mean, you know, I know there's a, a vegan counter argument to that, but I mean, to me, that's just 
you know, a, a, not a realistic argument. I mean, we have to we have to do this, and we do it in the most humane possible cases way possible in almost all cases, right? I mean, the way they they you know they they put down cows, they kill them very quickly. They don't suffer. Uh, with the rare exception, and, and the vegans like to point out the rare exceptions, but they really, truly try to make their death as painless as possible, as quick as possible. If you contrast that again to when, when animals eaten often while they're still alive, they're being eaten while they're still alive, a horrible, horrible death in the wild. But beyond that point, most like if, if, if cows were let loose to live in, in the wild, most of their infants, most of their calves would be decimated and eaten by wolves and other predators. So most of those animals would not make it in, even into adulthood. So the fact that we have all these animals and we raise them to adulthood, even though we're eating them, often gives them a longer, more quality of life than they would have gotten in the wild in many cases because these animals, you know, again, more than half of them probably get killed uh, by predators. And we, and, and the humans are protecting those animals, they're protecting them from predators, they're letting them out in pasture, they're, they're you know, they're freely roaming for most of their life. You know, if they're grass finished, then it's pretty much their whole life. If they're grain finished, it's their whole life with the exception of a few months. And so, again, their quality of life overall is probably better than what they would have obtained in the wild, with the exception of a few animals that will live longer that, that seem how, that, that escape, you know, early death from predation. Yeah. Um, it, it just seems like people don't like realize like like the, it's a and this gets a bigger societal thing of like people aren't intimately uh like comfortable with the idea of death and when you know these cute little things and having the idea that like we'd have to go after them um but you know it's it, when you realize that it's like a part of life and 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 some of the farmers that I know uh you know that raise some of these animals are the most like they're the most connected to the animals more so than the activists or you know people who can't even you know don't even want to think about the situation because uh you know they're they're so cute or they saw this video one time so well we uh, you know i call it the disneyification of nature i mean you know we've got people that for a whole generation that's never been in contact with nature they grew up watching these disney cartoons especially these younger kids that are falling prey to this veganism uh sort of movement uh you know you know, they, they have no idea. And so all they do is they get this 10 second soundbite for some radical vegan showing some crazy video where an animal is being, you know, injured or, or, or badly treated. And they conflate that to every single situation out there. You know, we don't talk to the farmers. We don't talk to the cattle ranchers. They don't have a voice in this, which which kind of frustrates me because I think these need these people need to speak up more and say what it's really like. And hopefully we can kind of bring that to light. But you know, the uh, whole idea that, uh, you know, farmers and cattle ranchers are bad people is just it, it's really sort of frustrating to me. And it's almost, you know, anger producing because, you know, these are the people that feed us. These people do hard work. I mean, they don't they should be getting, you know, patted on the back. They should be, you know, being, you know, lauded and not demonized. And so it's, it's to me, it's just quite frankly, uh, uh, you know tremendous hypocrisy to do that sort of stuff. You know, you sit back there and you sit there and think like you're going to eat your processed food or you're going to eat your, your, your fruit that's been imported from who knows where on earth and how much resource and fuel it took to bring you your, your, your strawberries in January. You know, it, it's, it's just, to me, it's just, I mean, it's almost, it's very maddening to, to, to see that stuff. Oh, definitely. Uh, the last, the last thing I want to ask you about is, uh, the one thing that I, I think I've been really impressed with is just, um, you know, when I, 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 I kind of break nutrition down into a couple different parts, you know, a, one is, uh, a baseline for most people that, you know, just want to get to feeling good and having energy and, you know, just upgrading their level of, of life from tired and lethargic all the time to like normal energy levels, realizing how good they could feel. And then uh, kind of the, the next level that I'm interested in is performance and how you do the the sheer number of things at 50 that you're able to do. Um, when most people at 50 say, okay, you know, I'm not allowed. Yeah, I, you know, at 40, I gave up basketball. I'm not, you know, I'm not really pushing myself through workouts anymore. And you continue to do that. And so I guess one, I'm I'm curious about your training there, and then two, um, how how um, have you 
have you tweaked uh, the carnivorous diet at all uh, to kind of help modify for your training or has that on its own been the tweak? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, obviously I've been an athlete my whole life. I mean, I've been successful in a lot of sports. I've got a pretty, pretty strong competitive drive. I know how to train. I mean, I've been training with top level athletes, world champions, gold medalists, you know, uh, for many years in different sports. So I, I have the I have all the sort of knowledge and the tools to to be successful, you know, physically. Um, the diet for me, I mean, it's not that I tweak the diet. The diet sort of tweaks itself based upon the demands I put on it. And so what I'm what I, what I mean by that is, you know, my appetite will respond to my training. And so if my training intensity goes up. Typically, my appetite will go up to meet that. And as my performance increases, you know, my, my appetite will change to, to meet that. So the diet sort of auto tweaks itself, if, if you understand that. You know, if, if, we, if we make the assumption that the human being is a simple animal and we have an appetite for a reason and we're giving ourselves the right nutrition, um, our body will sort of ask us to give, give ourselves food when we need it. And so when I'm putting all those demands on my body, you know, I'm just getting these signals for appetite to say, okay, if you're going to, if you're going to ask your body to do these things, these hard things and train really hard and train like you're in your twenties, then you better support yourself nutritionally like that. And that's given to me by my appetite. If that, if that makes sense, it's, I know it's a very simple concept. People think there's a calculation you have to do. People think you have to have a calculator uh, or, or an app to, to eat now. I mean, it's, it's almost insane the way we, we treat nutrition now when, you know, it's like any other animal planet. It's just like, okay, I eat when I'm hungry, you know, and then they already know what they're supposed to eat. So it's not hard. So for me, the tweak is my appetite. You know, I listening to my appetite, being in tune with the body. Uh, if I, if my performance is lower or if my energy is lower, you know, that's, that's a signal to me. I need to eat some more basically. And then, if, and then if I'm doing fine, then I'm, then I'm eating enough. And typically, and after a period of time, you kind of figure out what, what I need day to day for me again, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 245, 250 pounds, six foot five. I'm very athletic, very active. I need about four pounds of me today for me personally to, to maintain my body mass, maintain function and to perform. And so that's really the only tweak I do. I mean, I played a little bit with some you know, sodium and electrolytes and stuff like that. But generally, it's just eating enough to, to fuel, uh, you know, what I'm asking myself to do. It's it's really amazing what uh, your body can actually kind of start pointing you towards once you strip away all the filler and the gulk and the crap and uh, just the chemicals that are in most people's diets. I've noticed even, you know, when I when I'm on a pretty clean paleo or keto diet. Um, and if I need something, if I need like a specific vitamin or whatever, like my body will be like, you should have those. And, and like, I, I, it points me towards the thing and it's not a hunger thing. It's more of like my body being like, Hey, you should, you should go after that. I think there's a lot of intuition that we don't really tap into because, uh, we're so saturated in all these, uh, different chemicals that we're constantly feeding that we're never, ever, uh, able to get to that baseline um, where you can kind of just, you know, listen to the signals from your body and then react. Um, I think that's all I've got for right now, man. This is, this was awesome. I, uh, I really enjoyed uh, this, uh, this interview is, uh, can you tell people where, um, where to find you if uh, they have uh, any questions for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, my personal sort of social media stuff is uh, Instagram. It's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, Baker, B-A-K-E-R, 1967. That's that's Instagram. Uh, Twitter, S-Baker-M-D. I founded a Facebook group called the World Carnivore Tribe. Um, Meatheels.com is a website that we've started uh, for uh, people with, with lots of stories that are interesting, a lot of resources for carnivory. There's, some, there's a lot of scientific resources linked into that. Uh, we've also got um, n equals many.com, which is a, a, a place where we're, we're starting to compile scientific data for carnivory and, and a few other health interventions. Um, and I think, I'm trying to think, oh, carnivore training systems.com, that, that's how I kind of detail how I train and I have a lot of people that are using that system to, to kind of help with general fitness. And it also has a kind of an introduction and a way to implement a carnivorous diet for those people that are interested 
uh, in doing that. But uh, I res- I try to respond as much as I can to all this, you know, emails and social media comments I get and direct messages. You know, uh, it's getting a little a little hectic right now as I as I, you know, a lot more of these people that are that are that are following this crazy old guy, you know, talking about eating meat. But it's 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 certainly causing a bit of a, a discussion in larger and larger circles now. No, I, I really enjoyed this. I'm going to have to give it a, a 30-day trial. Uh, one quick question, actually, one last thing before. If people are going to, uh, to, to do a quick trial of this, is there a point, like when you do keto, you have the keto flu, is there a transition period that they need to just push through uh, in order to, uh, uh, to really get the full benefits? I know a lot of people, when they do keto, they hit like 7 to 10 days and they start feeling really crappy and they give up. Um, you have any advice on that aspect? Yeah, I mean, that, and it's very similar because some of the physiology is very similar to a ketogenic diet, particularly on people coming from a high carbohydrate based diet. And so, yeah, there is a there is an adaptation period. It, it typically lasts anywhere from a week to even up to up to two months. You know, it just depends on where you're coming from. Some of the big issues that I see, probably the biggest issue that I see for people that that struggle to adapt, is things like lethargy and low energy. Uh, and that usually because uh, is because of not eating enough, and it's hard to eat enough sometimes because meat is so satiating that people will tend to undereat and they'll really drop their caloric uh, intake quite a bit, and it won't support it won't support what they need to do both nutritionally and energy wise. And so I often tell people, the, the, if I could give you one tip starting this, it would be eat meat like it's your job. You know, get stuffed, eat, enjoy it, make it decadent. And, and don't worry about restricting things or counting macros and doing all those things because that's going to set you up for failure. You just need your job is just to eat, transition to it, enjoy the food, look forward to the food, you know, make it as make it any way you can. So it's really enjoyable and really just, you know, every time you even think about something else, just eat a little more. And eventually those those cravings will pass. Those symptoms of transitioning will pass and then you'll kind of get through and then you'll start to feel uh, a lot of the benefits that a lot of people are talking about. Awesome. Eat meat like it's your job. I'll, I'll, I'll write that down and I'll put all your links here in the show notes. Uh, Sean, man, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Uh, when I'm back in Southern California, maybe we'll, uh, do this again and meet up in person. Yeah, we'll have a steak together, man. All right, bud. All right. Thanks. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed that show. I thought it was really interesting. I enjoyed Sean's perspective on it and it's definitely a new take uh, in the nutrition space. So uh, if you're interested in trying out the carnivore diet, you can check it out. I've got all the details in the show notes. If you guys enjoyed the show, go head on over to iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher and leave a review. I really would appreciate it. Helps us reach more people and remind everyone to keep pushing their limits, and do something impossible. If you guys want to do yourselves a favor, go head on over to movableapp.com. 10-minute mobility routines to help you get stronger, recover from injuries faster, and move well. Check it out, movableapp.com. It's free to download, and you're going to help yourself out. Also, if you guys want a reminder to get comfortable while being uncomfortable, you can go get an impossible shirt, impossible hoodie, and a bunch of other Impossible Gear over at impossiblegear.com. You can get 10% off with promo code PODCAST. It's the best gear out there to help you be comfortable while doing something uncomfortable. So check it out, impossiblegear.com. Support yourself, support the show. 10% off with promo code PODCAST. All right, guys, that's it for the show. I will see you right here next week. And until then, keep pushing your limits and do something impossible. <laughs>